Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to New Books in Psychoanalysis, a podcast of the New Books Network. My name is Sebastian Truhl, your host for today, and I have the great pleasure and great honor to introduce Dr. Jonathan Sklar. Dr. Sklar is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst in London and has been in psychoanalytic practice for 36 years. He's a supervising and training analyst of the British Psychoanalytic Society, chairman of the Independent Psychoanalysis Trust, and has been a leader of Berlin groups for 25 years. He was vice president of the European Psychoanalytic Federation from 2007 to 2011, and has been teaching psychoanalysis in Eastern Europe, North and South America and South Africa, and is author of numerous publications, books as well as papers. His latest book, which we will talk about today, is titled Dark Times, Psychoanalytic Reflections on Politics, History, and Mourning. And this was published by Phoenix in 2018. It's a remarkable study of some of the most devastating political atrocities of the last century and the collective and individual vicissitudes. Jonathan, it is an honor to have you. Welcome to the program. Sebastian, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to join you. Thank you. Jonathan, the title dark times um, and the publication date 2018 arguably one could say that um, you know times have gotten darker since the writing of this book but when you were originally writing it and I think it was a process over a a number of years um, what what prompted you to write this book what made you think about dark times in the political sense I think I was becoming more and more aware um, of the rise of the totalitarian mind. Um, This was coming up in teaching in Warsaw some years ago when I had a group of young candidates, no, young analysts in a EPF Congress uh, weekend in Warsaw to They presented their cases, uh, some training analysts were uh, supervising, and on the first night, they rushed down to downtown Warsaw to the main square by the castle, had a wonderful time, as I heard the next morning, drinking beer uh, in an open taverna, and they described, uh, tavern, and they described how wonderful the evening was, and I heard a note of discord in my mind. Do they know where they were sitting? This was a place where, um, uh, from 1943, with the destruction of the Warsaw Ghetto and with the Red Army then coming in in, um, towards the end of the the Second World War, um, something like 90% uh, of Warsaw, and certainly the center, was destroyed. And the communists soon after um, 
decided to rebuild it. And they did this by taking uh, Canaletto's pictures of Warsaw and rebuilding the whole central structure of the castle and the old medieval square in concrete and then painted it. So it looks totally perfect as it was. And then I thought, well, this is like psychoanalysis. A patient comes um, with a surface, um, concealing behind that um, mental life, which early on had been destroyed or attacked or mutilated. And the Saturday evening, I gave a talk about this, about how they had to be aware of um, what the history of, of their patients was, what the history of where they were in Europe, because Europe is full of such uh, um, places of mourning, of the loss of uh, life that had gone on during wars, during the getting rid of the Jews um, in 1492, those sorts of things. And having had that in my mind for some years, seeing what was going on in the States with uh, uh, Trump getting elected, with uh, his racism, um, all that began to make me very, very concerned. And I realized that um, as a psychoanalyst, I knew a lot about uh, states of sadomasochism, uh, perversion uh, in my clinical work with my patients. But it's not too different to, uh, to think that one can find those same structures in society. And mm-hmm. psychoanalysts know a lot about these states of mind. And why shouldn't this be spoken about, written about in terms of um, politics. Now, the problem with that is that um, since the, I suppose, the 1920s, the 1930s, longer, uh, it, was, uh, it wasn't liked by the IPA for psychoanalysts to speak out about society. Eric Fromm did it. Um, before that, uh, Otto Fenichel, Wilhelm Reich, um, in the 50s, it was the Michelics, Mari Langer mm-hmm. later on, R.D. Lang. So there have been a, a whole series of analysts who have spoken up. Um, but the sense that if an analyst is doing that, um, it will somehow not be helpful to the clinical situation in the consulting room um, it's a, it was an ill-advised thing to do. And I think it's often still see, seen to be the same. And yet, we can't be observers about what's going on in our environment. Uh, and since I've written the book, I think those things have got worse. And, for instance, with um, Black Lives Matter that suddenly erupted again, uh, how can psychoanalysts, how can analytic institutions uh, be on the wrong side of history, not wondering about, for instance, um, racism in our own institutions, as an example? I'll pause there. Mm. Mm. 
Mm. I think that comes out in the book very well, like especially your commitment to history, but to a very specific kind of history. Because what I what I felt while reading the book was it's actually a book of stories. It's it's not a book of abstract, distanced thinking about capital H history, but about histories connected to individuals, to to people. And I think that's that's where the the commitment to history and also you being a practicing, a clinical analyst come together really well. And that's something I think that you you bring to the discussion, right? It's not not an abstract uh, theoretical point of view from you, but it's very visceral in, in telling these stories about Nazi Germany, about South Africa, about ISIS and the crimes of ISIS. You can't help but read those passages and you write about this in the book in a psychosomatic sense. You can't help but feel feel something physically when reading those accounts. Well, yes, you're absolutely right. I realized, um, I think really after I finished writing the book and, and uh, friends of mine were reading it, um, I was, I heard how, how painful it was to read. Well, I sort of knew that. Um, but then I realized that I had written a psychosomatic book in the sense that the stories I was telling, you're, you're absolutely right, um, the reader inevitably, in the way I was writing it, has to feel it. It's, it's not some sort of uh, intellectual pursuit that one can pass over emotionally. It's, uh, it's a painful book to read. Um, mm -hmm. But I think that if these profoundly difficult things are not spoken about and discussed, including the somaticness, the pain of it, then it stays in the world of the intellect. Um, it, it, we need to be touched more by these difficult things. Yeah, and, and I think that is something that is that is really different also from from quote unquote applied psychoanalytic writing, like academic psychoanalytic writing from people who are not practicing psychoanalysts. Because I think all these theories we have are 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 beautiful in a in a way, right? But they only get fleshed out in in the actual process of doing psychoanalysis. Well, that's, that's true. Um, when one's part of uh, the dyad uh, in, in a, a clinical analysis, um, the patient may not or may begin to feel all sorts of things. Often the very uh, ill patient um, has learned not to feel. Well, one clue to the resonance of that is when the analyst begins to feel all sorts of things, which uh, is ego-dystonic. You think, why am, I, why am I feeling so terrible today? Well, it was the session that the patient had uh, a sort of bland indifference to what they were talking about. In time, the patient reclaims that. So um, 
psychoanalysis, clinical psychoanalysis, uh, is not an intellectual pursuit only. It has to be a psychosomatic pursuit. And I think that's profoundly important. And I think from from time to time, it's often perceived uh, by clinicians as being um, much more uh, a logical sequence. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But let me let me push you a bit on this point because I I would like to hear more about how what like what's the value you see in transferring that stance that that whole bearing to the political realm? Why why exactly do you think it is important to feel in political discourse or to? to feel feel something even physically when hearing those stories because i mean uh, people have argued that it's really important to be mostly rational in the political realm and and actually not be affected too much and not to feel too much what why do you think it is important to actually allow yourself to be touched by what you see happening around yourself in the political realm If we're talking about the people, the population, not not politicians, my my experience is that um, people are aghast at what goes on, particularly in the last few years, um, with with the rise of uh, totalitarianism all around the world. People feel frightened. They don't know what to do. They don't know what to think other than they really don't like some of the things that are being said, how they're being governed. And there needs to be some way through uh, to mobilize people to think more deeply. I... In having written the book, uh, I I have done um, quite a few um, meetings in bookshops and uh, uh, invitations in various places in the world to talk about it. And I've had a room full of uh, maybe 40 people, maybe 100 people. Um, And what interests me is they listen and they feel... And they feel about what I'm talking about in relation to their own uh, environment. Um, And it allows them to have a bit more freedom to speak. Wherever I've gone to do that, um, people in the room have spoken. Uh, I'll give you an example. I I was invited to Oslo to speak in um, uh, one of the main bookshops in, in the city. And the person who invited me, Lena Arshdad, um, said, "Well, we, we've got the um, we've got the anti-fascist league at the door." I said, "Really? Yes, it's to protect you, Jonathan." Mm-hmm. I thought I didn't need protection. Well, what? How nice, though. She said, "Yes, we have Nazis in in Oslo now. Um, um, they're in the marketplace uh, at the weekend with uh, their beards and their." leather outfits and their Nazis insignia, and they might come. I said, oh, okay. Um, 
Anyway, the point was that one Nazi did get in because near the end of uh, uh, my work that morning, uh, a man put his hand up and said in a very sort of small voice, um, I don't believe the Holocaust happened. And I couldn't believe what I heard. And I carried on asking, uh, pointing to somebody's hand was up to say something else. And suddenly, two minutes later, I realized what I'd heard. And I went back uh, to this man. And I said, you know, in, if this was in the United Kingdom or in Germany, uh, that would be a crime called hate speech. Of course, in, in, um, in Oslo, um, since Brevik, the government decided that um, to cool the heat that had gone on with all the murders of those young politicians, people should be allowed to say anything they want. I mean, the exact opposite. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the room was alive with, well, why shouldn't he say whatever he said? And, and then some people were taking my line as well. So there was, in the room, there was, from that visceral moment of horror, um, there was a very energetic conversation. And to my astonishment at the end of the morning, um, the so-called Nazi came up to me and said, well, thank you very much. That was very interesting. I have no oh, wow. idea what happened to him, but it's an example of how one could mobilize uh, a small group of people to think for themselves rather than um, being part of um, uh, the group that is led by this politician, that politician. Right. And I think that's a very, that that's a really important story. And that's also a very important point that you make in the book that informed by, by, your work in the consulting room, you have a, a special attunement to how splitting uh, into us versus them works in the public sphere as well, right? And apparently in, in the story that you, you just told us, something happened where that was bridged. I mean, he came up to you afterwards and, and thanked you and th said it was really interesting. That doesn't happen when splitting goes on, right? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Let me take that a bit further. Um, I, I've been very interested in um, the writings of Ferenczi, um, who for many decades had got lost from the analytic world, which is an interesting story, perhaps for another time. But his uh, late paper, 1933 paper, Confusion of Tongues, um, is one of the very earliest papers um, on pedophilia. Mm -hmm. It's much more than that, but it's certainly about that. And in that paper, Ferenczi describes uh, how uh, a child is groomed where I grown up, say a little girl of five or six, who's very pleased to have Uh, the attention of a grown-up man. And in time, in time, with the pleasure that the child has um, of the attention, eventually the man 
um, fucks up. And from the consulting room, I know when I'm in that territory, not because the patient says, I think I've been abused, which is an intellectual statement invariably um, at the beginning. But when I hear material like, um, I can remember the, the pattern on the wallpaper or the curtains, which I think is a representation of the moment of a splitting of the mind between what's going on in the room with the child's body and holding on to a piece of sanity by looking out the window or looking at the, the pattern. That's the beginning of the split. But Ferenzi goes further and says, when it's finished, the grown-up says to the child, now you can't tell anybody about this, and if you did, they wouldn't believe you, and anyway, you made me do it. So his point is that following the somatic pedophilic fuck, there's a mind fuck. And it's that second assault on the mind that really uh, drives the child who does not recover uh, into a state of uh, various forms of madness, meaning that they can't grow up and have a creative life because something is fixed. Now, I think you, see, you can see the same things in society. A bunch of uh, men are having a, a drink in a pub. They work together, they're friends. Um, there's one Jew in the group, and somebody says an anti-Semitic joke. And the Jew doesn't know whether to, as part of camaraderie, to laugh or to say, no, no, this is, uh, uh, this is terrible. Um, and if the Jew protests, um, the person says, well, you know, you Jews, you're, you're so thin-skinned. Mm-hmm. Can you see the mm-hmm. biphasic attack that when you do speak up about how dare you do this to me, you're told that what you thought was happening wasn't true. I'll give you a football example. Yeah. In yeah. 2012, um, uh, the British uh, footballers were, were playing um, uh, in Eastern Europe, um, the Serbs, Britain, United Kingdom against the Serbs. Uh, there was a, a, a black uh, British footballer, every time he went to touch the ball, uh, a bunch of the crowd, a large bunch, started pointing at him in a sort of Nazi way, Nazi salute, saying uh, uh, that he was a monkey. And they even threw bananas at him. Now, the British team didn't fragment. They stayed together. Um, And afterwards, uh, I mean, there was a whole furore about this. Uh, And Serbia, I think, uh, had all sorts of penalties about what their their supporters had done. But the Serb supporters said, well, um, what was wrong with throwing bananas? And the interviewer said, well, it's as if um, uh, you were throwing a a banana to uh, uh, a monkey. We didn't say that. That's your inference. We just threw bananas. Mm -hmm. You have the same biphasic attack there of profound contempt for somebody um, in the light of day. 
it's the same thing as Trump saying, um, well, I can walk on Main Street and shoot somebody, kill them, and no one will do anything. It's the same mm-hmm. massive contempt that you can't quite believe what you're hearing, but it needs to be taken very, very seriously. So mm-hmm. I think for Renzi, uh, um, his paradigm can be very, very useful to sort of look at social situations, social and political situations, and free the mind to what's being done to citizens. Mm-hmm. While you were talking, I was I was thinking about, and and also while reading the book, about a even like a still broader societal context, namely um, class issues, because it seems like within the neoliberal model, there's also a biphasic attack, like you just described happening, namely saying um, people, people fail economically due to difficult circumstances, right? Like being, being working class, not getting a chance to, to actually make it uh, in, in the gig economy. And then there's a second, a second attack after the failure that they're set up to have uh, when they're told, you know, this is actually, this actually doesn't have anything to do with your environment. This is all up to you. That's right. It's and I think exactly that, that is what, what's, what is so devastating to people. And I think people are, are starting to kind of catch up to, to this perverted logic. It, it is perverse logic. It's absolutely right. And the problem is that, when you're on the receiving end of it, I think individuals freeze because they don't know what to do with it. It's such a massive attack on one's mind, on one against who one thinks one is. You mean all this is my fault? But the whole global economic crisis is my fault because uh, I can't be a billionaire. I mean, the argument is nonsensical, mm-hmm. but it feels terrible. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that I think is available uh, for us in the future, now and in the future, is we have the possibility, because of the pandemic, uh, to be very, very thoughtful about creating some sort of new order. Now, I'm talking in a very idealistic way, but... Um, What's the point in giving huge sums of money uh, to the banks and the the big uh, corporations to survive the pandemic um, only for uh, the poor and the disadvantaged to continue to be at the bottom of um, uh, life in Mm -hmm. countries? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I I would like to bring this back to psychoanalysis in a way because – Sometimes, and you talk about this in the book as well, sometimes I feel like we as psychoanalysts are sometimes attacked in the same way because you talk about this in the context of the NHS, where we don't have an environment that could be called facilitating for the kind of work that we do, right? I mean, through the NHS, you get a handful of sessions. Uh but but then 
again with the biphasic attack right you you get this sense of oh my god what what is it about me as a psychoanalyst that i'm not doing good enough work here how 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 can i not how can i not keep patience how can i how can i not get analytic patience for some people right and but i think you have to look at the environment and the context in which this is happening and i think sometimes we miss we as analysts miss that as well right we can't just do our work totally independent of the economic or or even ideational environment in which we work well <clears throat> coinciding with my uh, qualifying as a psychoanalyst i had to leave um the tavistock adult department where i was training at the same time i was very fortunate to have this double exposure to psychoanalysis when i was young and i got a job as a consultant psychotherapist in cambridge where uh, there was uh, a psychotherapy department um, and over a dozen years um, i was able to develop that and i was able to get a bigger department because quite a lot of uh, people who were um, in the private sector learning psychotherapy training would come to the, the department and in exchange for getting supervision would take on a couple of patients. So that was very efficient. One could have supervision in groups. So I had a department where patients were seen uh, two, three, some even four times a week, one or two, but several three times a week, a lot twice a week um, for two or three years. And patients were seen on time. It was the only department in Addenbrooks where patients were seen at the time of their appointment. So it was, a, it was going very well until the powers that be uh, wanted to get rid of the two analysts there. So an administrator came round and said, well, this is all very good, Dr. Sklar, but um, uh, how come you're seeing patients in your department at seven in the morning and seven at night? I said, well, that's so that the patients can carry on in their work and be economically uh, uh, alive. Um, it's difficult, patients taking time off in the middle of the day. Um, and this administrator said, yes, but do you realize that um, the lights in your department have to be on early in the morning and into the evening? <laughs> I thought, <laughs> um, this is total madness. You know, instead of somebody saying, um, silly me, what an efficient, what a good department, I was being told, what a wastrel I was. I was wasting National Health Service money on the lights being on. Um, and that was the beginning of a realization that it really was nearly impossible with the psychiatrists around um, who had such contempt for the work to, uh, to support their beings, psychotherapy. The academics in Cambridge were terribly upset when... Uh, um, I was uh, pushed out um, and wanted me to stay in some academic role, but it, it wasn't to be. Um, it took something like four or 500 years for Cambridge to uh, 
have a professor of psychiatry. So to have a professor of psychoanalysis would probably take another 500 years. (laughs) (laughs) Would it be be fair to say that your book can be understood as an intervention in, in that sense as well? Like just seeing that the environment shapes the way we are able to work. So we have to speak out, we have to speak up publicly. Yes, I think so. But I see it as the same issue as, as severely ill patients coming into analysis uh, who have learned not to speak up. I mean, if right. you've grown up with uh, you know, a maternal, paternal environment where you were scared you knew you weren't loved, you had to lie low uh, and to survive, which is then taken into adult life. It's very hard to um, realize that maybe the work needs to be done to begin to trust when one hasn't trusted for most of one's life. Uh, And in time, that work can be done so that the patient learns to speak up. I certainly think The same is necessary um, uh, ethically um, in the environment of how we live our lives in society. I also think it's terribly important in terms of um, international psychoanalysis that um, to realize that psychoanalysis is an ethical state of mind. Definitely, Jonathan. But what you just said, I can see this for the consulting room, right? But patients allowing themselves to open up um, happens within the context of of a frame that is very secure and that we try to keep as firm as possible, right? The same cannot be said for for politics and or, or even like for for the state the state is not providing a frame in which uh, you know, people can actually open up and and have this sort of discourse and allowing themselves to speak up. This is a very different situation from my perspective. That, of course, is true, which is why uh, I've come to the conclusion at the present time that one can do this in small town hall meetings, as it were. Right, right. And my, my thought is that, you know, if you have 50 people come and somehow they can have a freedom to speak in a way that they never thought they would have. You know, they were coming to listen to an expert to learn rather than Mm -hmm. to be part of the process of the learning. Well, then they could leave. And if they each told, you know, 10 people and those 10 people each told another 10 people, it's like throwing a a pebble into the pond that uh, there's a disturbance that spreads out. So, but but zooming out again to a, to a broader societal context, um, as I said before in the book, there's there's a strong argument for um, bridging, splitting, right? Yeah. For, for not not falling into the trap of us versus them. But then, aren't there moments, and you you even allude to that in the book, in politics where it actually is us versus them i mean the first story you tell in the book is the story about the war of cable street in london and that's a, a that's a very 
definite us versus them moment that that was victorious for for the left because they were able to organize right to to organize a large amount of people through trade unions through the communists through the jews and, the and having this moment and the, and the irish and the irish having this moment of us versus them yeah. and that's that's something that 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 has a place in politics and is really important as well right that's right but i see that in in uh an analysis as well i think okay that there are moments where um there has to be a confrontation I mean, I can't show you this on the radio, but I can try and describe it. Winnicott um, um, held his hands out and said, um, um, I accept the projection, I accept the projection, I accept the projection. Then he hit his hands together. At some point, you don't accept it anymore. Wow. There has to be a moment where... Um, there is a clash in an environment where the patient you think is safe enough. Right. But I, I want to widen this a bit to talk about memorials. I mean, Black Lives Matter has had a, a, a massive resurgence around the world, which is a good thing. And statues are being pulled down which is a complicated issue, and I've written about that in the book as well, as you know. Yes, um, yes. But I had a thought that there are many, many courthouses um, in the deep uh, southern states uh, of the U.S., um, and outside the courthouses there's usually a big tree in, in little towns. And those big trees are probably quite old, you know, 150 years, maybe, 200 years, maybe. And I expect that several black bodies were hanging like southern fruit. And the black people in those towns go past the courthouse and go past the tree, and they know their family history of what happened to grandfather or great-grandfather. What a thought to put a memorial in front of that tree to say, uh, here, and then you put the list of all the, all the people who were hung with their dates, to actually give those families who had forebears who were murdered in that way, to have a piece of their history restored to them respectfully. You get the same sort of thing in, for instance, Berlin, where you go across the threshold of a shop and um, somewhere uh, as you're walking in um, on the lintel or underneath uh, uh, the doorstop, uh, there's some writing which said this shop used to be owned by uh, the Cohens uh, who were sent off to uh, uh, Auschwitz in such and such a year. Meaning as you step into the, the modern shop, you also notice the history 
of what was once there. It's right. about keeping history in mind in our environment. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I think like even now this there's a very visceral sense of of how important those symbolic interventions are. At the same time, um, in the book, in respect to the crimes of ISIS, I think you make a really, really important point that gets lost sometimes in the discussion. And that is that in the real, the perpetrators of these vicious, traumatizing crimes have to be brought to justice right there's not just symbolism that needs to 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 happen to to kind of you know try to work through the trauma there's also in reality the need to feel safe again unless the perpetrator is brought to justice the victims uh have to contain by themselves the nightmare of their victimhood if they know that somebody has been prosecuted as an in prison, um, then the whole of their internal environment changes. I have been believed. Uh, there's been some redemption for me because the perpetrator has been put in prison for crimes. That's very different for ignoring that and just mm -hmm. letting the victims continue to be mired by uh, the horror of what had been done to them personally. So, yes, justice is profoundly important. And that's beginning to uh, be properly looked at, I think, certainly in the United Kingdom. Um, mm -hmm. you know, various uh, important institutions like the Bank of England um, or uh, Oxford and Cambridge Colleges um, uh, had either governors or large amounts of money given as endowments um, from uh, slave owners who had made vast sums of wealth uh, from transporting slaves or using them. And I think it's true that we didn't need to have um, uh, any debt in this country um, until a huge amount of money was paid to the slave owners for them to give up their slaves in the UK. Right. And that was the beginning of the national debt. And it was only in the last few years that that original debt was actually finished being paid back. That right. So these things run incredibly deeply through society. They mm -hmm. can be unbundled. Mm -hmm. There is... There's one more point that I want to come to. Um, like what you, what we were saying before about the possibility in town hall meetings to, to have, to have open dialogue and actually listen to and be listened to. Um, this is something that as a, as a utopia, we could, we could see happening within a larger societal context. Right. Mm. And then, then we would be faced probably with the problem of like very divergent ideas 
Um, and there's there's a phrase that you use in the book that really jumped out at me. Uh, it's a phrase coined by Edward Said, and this is listening contrapuntally. Yeah. Could you could you explain what you mean by that? Said is talking about the orchestra. That if you play the orchestra, you have to play your own instrument. But if you play an orchestra, you have to listen to the other instruments. So you have to find some mental space to do both. In a way, uh, he and Barenboim were arguing that Uh, the orchestra is um, uh, a wonderful exemplar of a society that when it works together, when it listens to all the instruments, the most powerful and emotionally uh, affecting uh, happenings can arise from listening to the, the music being played. And I think that was their view of how a society could be. I mean, this this was about the East-West Nivole, where <laughs> they set up a situation where uh, young Israeli musicians and uh, Palestinian and Arab musicians could come together, uh, not in uh, any Arab countries, uh, not in Israel, um, but in Spain, where some money was provided for the orchestra to uh, develop. And then it gave concerts, still gives concerts around the world. But it's a way of listening to all the instruments, you know, the poor, the rich, the middle classes, the left, the right. Um, in a way, it's um, a utopian idea that actually, in terms of music and concerts, it's real. Yeah. What what I what I really liked about the book is that and and about about your position in this is you're not naive about how difficult setting up a utopia like the one you described would be because there's this really amazing sentence that really jumped out at me where you say we're all racist anti-Semitic characters who in our unconscious want to murder our siblings so. I mean, we're really up against it, right? Like not not just f our surroundings, our environment, but within ourselves. Yes. We have all these like really difficult urges to deal with. This is true. Um, what, <laughs> what can I say other than um, psychoanalysis is, is a profound activity uh, that can gain us access to these unconscious states of mind, that if we know about them, um, we can understand much more clearly um, who is doing what to whom in our history, but also in the present tense of our lives, that, that we might um, be able to facilitate ourselves in society in, in a, a, a more humane uh, and, and dignified way. Know thyself, said the oracle, but Delphi. 
I think this is this is a very very fitting and very powerful moment to slowly come to a to a close because I think this is really this really sums up very well what this book is about and about about your huge commitment to psychoanalytic ideas and ideals and bringing them to the public uh, I think it's it's very important to, to to speak out in the way that you're doing in the book well thank you very much Sebastian for giving me the opportunity to uh, for us to talk together thanks Jonathan is there is there anything that you have lined up for us are you working on anything any another book or something I I am um, I I <laughs> I wanted to Is it in the stages of, 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 of being able to talk about it or you... a bit. I, I, I wanted to write a book on, on aesthetics, on on uh an art criticism and thinking about psychoanalysis. Um but my mind sort of finds a way back to looking at um uh these issues as well. I I've written a paper on uh, uh Velasquez in the pursuit of power, yes, um, which will be what, one of the papers in the book, which is looking at how um, Spain had a problem when the Balthazar, the crown prince, died, and uh, Spain needed to have allies and couldn't marry their son off to a princess, but they could marry their princess off to um, uh, the, the kingdom of France or somewhere else. Um, And Velasquez and uh, the king were very, very close together uh, so that Velasquez was able to speak uh, truth to power. But then I, mm. I change uh, uh, settings and, and look at the destruction of um, psychoanalysis by the Nazis uh, with mm -hmm. the Berlin of Vienna societies and, and the desecration of psychoanalysis way past the end of the second world war yes 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 so wow so that will be, be interesting in interesting mind. to interesting to look at yeah wow okay so we might have you back on for the next book um thank you very much uh for joining us today and um yeah we'll we'll talk again i'm sure it's been a great pleasure sebastian thank you very much thanks for jonathan me. thank you bye bye, bye, -bye.